Chapter 17 of The Life and Adventures of Michael Armstrong, The Factory Boy. This is a LibriVox recording. Chapter 17 A Journey Begun in Very Good Style, but Ending Not Quite So Well. A Faithful Description of a Valley in Derbyshire. Michael Makes Some New Acquaintance. And where was little Michael? The indentures, when duly signed and executed, did not remain two hours in Sir Matthew Dowling's possession before he began to put in action the power they gave him. Mr. Joseph Parsons perfectly understood the nature of the few necessaries which he was commanded to procure for the young stocking-weaver, and accordingly, by the time Sir Matthew had taken leave of Martha in the hall, after their walk back from Hoxley Lane, his confidential agent was ready to attend him in his study. Now, Mr. Parsons, I flatter myself that you will allow I have managed this business tolerably well. My excellent friend, L. Good Sharpton, will owe me a good turn, for thanks to the meddling of old Sir Robert, Prentice boys are not so easily got as they used to be. And you and I, Mr. Parsons, have got rid of a most infernal spy. Now then, to business. How soon can you set off with him? As soon as a horse can be harnessed to the jockey-cart, Sir Matthew. The jockey-cart? The devil! What a fool you are, Parsons! Have you really no more wit in you than to propose setting off willy-nilly with this young cur that yelped at the rate he did the other night, before all the fine folks in the county in an open jockey-cart? Fie, Mr. Parsons, fie! I really had a better opinion of your understanding. I thought he was going to set off at any rate by his own free will, Sir Matthew, replied the superintendent, and I knew when we got among the moors it wouldn't much matter to me if he did sing out. "'You are an excellent fellow, Parsons, true to the backbone and as firm as a rock. "'But don't you ever undertake to carry through such a pretty little kidnapping scheme as this, "'where everything is to be done according to law, "'unless you have got the help of a little such stuff as this?' "'And the knight touched his own forehead expressively as he spoke. "'There's few men as wouldn't be the better for a little of that, Sir Matthew,' "'returned the judicious Parsons with a submissive nod. "'But I'm ready and willing to do your bidding, be it what it may.' "'and that's the best way of putting your honour's wit to profit. "'You are right there, my good fellow. "'One captain is always better than two. "'But, however, as to Master Michael, Parsons, "'we must neither let him stay loitering here "'till his dainty mother has questioned all the gossips "'who will come to prate with her about her boy, "'and about all the nonsense current "'concerning Squire Elgood Sharpton's of Thistledown House. "'Nor yet must we carry him off at noonday in an open jockey-cart.' without permitting him to kiss his mother and brother and uncle and aunt, and the devil knows who, beside, from one end of Ashley to the other. All ready, perhaps, to tell him some amusing anecdotes concerning his future master. But what be the indentures good for, Sir Matthew? shrewdly inquired Mr. Parsons. If they don't give you power over the chap, let him hear what he will. Fair and softly, Mr. Parsons, there is a when and a where in all things. It has cost me some pounds and a d blank deal of trouble to get up a cry hereabouts concerning my goodness and charity to these Armstrongs. Once get the boy off, and you and I between us can make folks talk as loud of the great preferment he has come to as Mother Armstrong can about her doubts and alarms. There is no fear of that. I have more than one friend who will swear a thing or two for me but once get up a screaming bout at the widow's and a struggling scene in taking off the young gentleman and we never shall hear the last of it. So if you please, Mr. Parsons, we will just get the young gentleman to take a ride before he is an hour older. But not in a jockey cart, though. 
I believe you know the road and the baiting place. By Jove, Parsons, now I think of it, there would be no better joke than taking him in my own carriage for the first few miles, and letting you drive on as far as Wood End or thereabout, and wait till our coming. You know I have taken him out in the carriage lots of times, so he will think nothing of that, and I will have Crockley go with me to make the party agreeable. So off with you to Wood End as fast as you can go. But it must be in the covered cart, remember, and a trifle of cord must be in the way in case he gives trouble. Within an hour from this time, Sir Matthew Dowling's carriage was proceeding at a dignified and leisurely pace along a cross-country road which led to a lane, which led to a moor, across which was a track which led by another lane to Mr. Algood Sharpton's factory in the desolate hollow, known by the name of Deep Valley. The party, as arranged by Sir Matthew, consisted of himself, his friend Dr. Crockley, and Michael Armstrong. The little fellow had been repeatedly honoured by a seat in the same stately vehicle before, for the purpose of being shown off at various houses in the neighbourhood, and had a notion that he was now taken out in order to hear the remainder of his great fortune announced. That this final proof of Sir Matthew's benevolence should have for its object the sending him far away from Dowling Lodge would have been, but for the dreaded parting with his mother and brother, a source of unmixed joy to the little apprentice. And even with this drawback, the distant hopes of this young heart might have been read in the contented meditation of his eye, as he rode silently along in front of his jocose companions, who amused themselves the while in talking very mystically concerning him, and his very useful and judicious destination. At length the carriage reached the point at which Sir Matthew intended his airing should terminate, and he looked out to reconnoiter the opening of a lane to the left where he expected to see the covered cart. Nor was he disappointed. A covered cart, with an excellent stout horse in it, was drawn up close to the bank to take advantage of the shade of a thick elm-tree that grew upon it. As the carriage approached, the occupant of the humbler vehicle peeped out, and Sir Matthew recognized the punctual Parsons. "'Pull the check-string, Crockley,' said the knight. "'We will get out here. That is, you may if you will. There is no occasion, I suppose, for me to trouble myself, is there?' "'Oh, dear, no,' replied Dr. Crockley cheerfully. Here comes Parsons, good man and true. Get out, Master Michael. Jump, jump, and enjoy it, my fine fellow. Perhaps you won't have much time for jumping when you begin learning your trade. Without thinking it needful to reply to what he did not very clearly understand, Michael did as he was bid, and sprang from the carriage to the ground. The well-known figure of Parsons greeted him as his feet touched the turf, and the next instant he felt his hand suddenly seized by him. "'Shall you want me, Mr. Parsons?' said Dr. Crockley, putting his head out of the carriage. "'Not at all, sir,' replied the superintendent, leading Michael forward. "'Then shut the carriage door, John,' said Sir Matthew, "'and order the coachman to drive home.' "'Please, sir, please, sir,' uttered the plaintive voice of Michael as he turned his head and attempted to disengage his hand. "'Please, sir, is Mr. Parsons to take me away?' "'Yes, my boy, he is.' "'replied the knight, loud enough for the footman to hear. "'He is going to take you to your new master, "'and you may give my compliments to him, my dear, "'and tell him that I have sent him a very good boy. "'Good-bye, good-bye. "'Home.' "'So ended the colloquy. "'The carriage turned round and drove off by the way it came, "'and Michael Armstrong was left alone with Mr. Joseph Parsons. "'He need not, however,' have held the little fellow's hand so tight, for there was no rebellion in his heart, nor any thought of escape in his head. He knew his companion too well to hope for an explanation from him respecting this sudden manner of sending him off, 
and, child as he was, he had no inclination to weep before him. But on the contrary, his young heart swelled with a proud determination to behave well, and to set about his new employment with a stout spirit. Nevertheless, when he arrived at the cart he paused for a moment, before he obeyed the orders of Parsons to climb up, and ventured to say, "'Please, sir, mayn't I to see mother any more?' "'Climb up, I tell you,' said the brute, clenching his fist at him. "'And if you bother me with any more questions, I'll just give you this in your mouth to stop your jabbering.' Had Michael counted twenty years instead of ten, he could not more resolutely have screwed his spirit to endurance than he did as he now clambered up, and placed himself as he was directed, in the back part of the vehicle, not another syllable passed his lips. For four hours the slow but sore-footed cart-horse jogged on through a lane that would have made any pace beyond a walk intolerable. At the end of that time the cart stopped before the door of a lonely public house that formed a corner, round which the road turned off at nearly a right angle, and stretched across one of those wild and desolate moors which are, perhaps, only to be found in such perfection of dark and stony ruggedness in Derbyshire. Michael, as he descended from the cart, looked out upon the unlimited expanse of dreariness and shuddered. But his mind had not been sufficiently filled with the remembrance of brighter objects to give the scene as full effect upon him as it might have produced on others. The Mucklestone Moor, haunted by the Black Dwarf, was a pleasant spot compared to it. For there the barren heath was only strewed with fragments of stones around one certain spot whence rose, doubtless with some pretense to picturesque dignity, a huge column of unhewn granite. But on the ridge-top moor of Derbyshire no object reared itself above the rest, either to attract or relieve the eye. As far as sight could reach, the wild heath was encumbered with a crowded layer of large and shapeless grey stones, defying the air of heaven to nourish vegetation among them, and making any effort of man to remove the congregated mass desperate and unavailing. Arid, rugged, desolate was the desert that spread around and to those who knew the nature of the operations carrying on in every direction near it, no great stretch of imagination would have been necessary to suggest the idea of fitness and sympathy between the district and the most influential portion of its population. This is, indeed, a fitness that seems often found. Where towering mountains scale the heavens, the hardy natives show a spirit pure and clear as the sweet air by which they live. In the rich valleys of the east the lazy peasant eats his rice, purchased with easy labor, and is content to dream away his being in the sultry shade. And in the flinty region of our northern moors the race of millocrats batten and grow fat, as if they were conscious of and rejoiced in the local sympathy. A stunted elderly lad of all work came forth on hearing the rumbling of the wheels. "'Ask the dame if she has got two beds in one room,' said Mr. Parsons descending from the driving-seat of which he had had quite as much as he desired. The message brought out a hideous crone, whose sharp visage looked as if it had drawn itself up into points and angles while battling with the rough blasts that roared, whistled, and moaned about her dwelling. "'And who be you?' was her first salutation, to which Mr. Parsons only nodded graciously in reply. "'Dear me, be it you, sir,' exclaimed the woman. "'I ax your pardon for not knowing your honour at a glance.' "'Beds? Aye, aye, plenty of beds, sir. Please to walk in. "'Who is this fine young un? He can't have nothing to do with the mills, anyway. "'This is a fine holiday suit, dame, that Sir Matthew has been pleased to bestow upon him,' replied Mr. Parsons, "'and if he had behaved himself a little better, he might have lived like a prince to the end of his days. 
but he is an untoward chap and chose to cry when he should have laughed and so you see the fine folks at the lodge got tired of him what then this be the boy be it as we have had so many talking about he was to be made a gentleman of by sir matthew dowling and so he is turned off is he this was said as the old woman led the way to the receiving room that is to say the kitchen of the mansion and here though the season was still warm elsewhere a large fire was burning that its warmth was welcome might be gathered from the fact that the only persons in possession of the room were sitting or standing close beside it the guests before the arrival of the newcomers amounted only to three namely a young woman pacing her way to a distant service a stout lad her brother who travelled with her to carry her box and guard her from harm and a venerable-looking man with grey hair but having withal bright eyes and a florid skin and bearing in his dress and demeanour the appearance of a thriving agriculturist it was with so bustling a movement that the landlady pushed back the little round table on which stood the farmer's mug of beer and there was so much of respect in the manner with which she wiped the chair brought forward for mr parsons that the fact of his being a person of consequence became notorious to all the farmer quietly pushed back his chair to follow the table the young woman modestly squeezed herself very closely into the chimney-corner and her brother fairly bolted standing with eyes and mouth widely opened to gaze at ease upon the distinguished society into which it had been his chance to fall mr parsons took his place among them as such a great man ought to do that is to say he looked neither to the right nor to the left but made himself comfortable without taking the trouble of considering whether any other person were present or not michael crept in after him and when the more important part of the company had arranged themselves he was observed standing alone in the most distant part of the room what dost stand shivering there for my boy said the old farmer in north country dialect so broad as to be dangerous for south country folks to spell i could be after thinking there was some mistake here surely you ought not to be standing while some other folks are sitting this observation though the genuine result of the old man's notions of vulgar and the reverse might not have been so bluntly spoken had he not felt himself affronted by the unceremonious style in which his place before the fire had been taken from him michael probably did not understand the full meaning of the remark nevertheless he looked dreadfully terrified and fixed his eyes upon the back part of mr parson's august head his face being fortunately turned from him with an expression of desperate fear that seemed to puzzle the good farmer well now don't he look as well behaved and pretty a young gentleman as one would wish to see continued the farmer turning to the young girl and yet there's no mistaking that t'other's his master fine feathers makes fine birds for them as you can see no farther cried parsons contemptuously and turning one of his threatening scowls upon the old man but wait a bit good man goose and you'll find out perhaps all is not gold as glitters poor little fellow exclaimed the farmer on meeting the superintendent's ill-omened eye i wish with all my heart master that nobody cared no more for your ugly looks than i do dame pritchard said parsons without appearing to hear him let the boy and me have a bit of supper d'ye hear spite of his fine clothes however which were but a gift of charity the boy is neither better nor worse than one of our factory children i would not half thought it said the old man apparently satisfied and turning to his mug no i dare say retorted parsons with a sneer such chaps as you seldom finds out what's what or who's who before they are told from this moment no further interest was expressed about little michael he was a factory boy and what good was there in asking any further questions 
So a thick slice of bread and a scrap of bacon were set before him, and as soon as the more elaborate supper of Mr. Parsons was concluded, he, with great affability, took the little fellow by the hand, and, preceded by Dame Pritchard and a candle, conducted him to a pallet bed in the same chamber as his own. For the first moment after he was left alone with the boy, the superintendent felt a strong inclination to make him pay for the affronts he had been the cause of his receiving below. But the same wisdom which had cut short his indignation there checked him now. And, having locked the chamber door and given Michael a stimulating kick to hasten his undressing, he carefully packed in a bundle the Dowling Lodge suit which he took off, leaving in its place beside the bed the result of his hasty shoppings at Ashley. When roused from his slumbers at daybreak the following morning, Michael found these new garments ready for him, and for a moment his heart sunk at the change, for though new, they were of the very lowest kind, and formed as strong a contrast as well as possible with the dress he had laid aside on preparing for his night's rest. But the human mind will often show symptoms of philosophy even at ten years old, which truth was made evident by the manner in which the young apprentice invested himself in his new suit, cheering his spirit as he did so, with the recollection that a person going to be bound to a trade like that of stocking-weaving would look very ridiculous in such a dress as had been just taken away from him. Early as it was, Mrs. Pritchard was ready in the kitchen with a pot of hot tea for Mr. Parsons. Michael received a fitting hunch of bread, the covered cart was brought up to the door, and the ill-matched pair set off again upon their journey. It might have been paradoxical to say that the temper of Mr. Parsons was irritated by the patient, unsuspicious, and submissive demeanour of his helpless charge. Yet such, nevertheless, was the fact. It was many years since the bones of Mr. Parsons had been exposed to any conveyance more rough and rude than Sir Matthew's jockey-cart, which was constructed with excellent and efficient springs. The movement, therefore, of the covered vehicle which had brought his aching joints to the crooked billet on Ridgetop Moor was equally unwanted and disagreeable and now that the peaceful demeanour of his little companion had convinced him that it was altogether unnecessary, he felt ready to twist his neck round, as an atonement for all he had endured. Ere they had advanced a mile further, however, his spirit found a species of consolation that was perfectly congenial to it. The drear dark desert that spread before them, dimly visible as far as the eye could reach through the chilling mist of the morning, was just such a region as his heart desired for the dwelling of the young plague who had caused him so jolting a journey. And here, too, the covering of the rough machine was far from unwelcome, so that Mr. Parsons, as he drove slowly and cautiously onward amidst the deep ruts and rumbling stones, looked out upon the bleak desolation of the scene with a feeling that almost approached to complacency. At length the moor was passed, and for a few miles their joints enjoyed the luxury of a turnpike road. The country, too, seemed softening into a species of wild beauty that might, in some degree, atone for its bleakness. But ere this had lasted for more than a couple of hours, the horse's head was again turned aside from the main road, and by a steep and very rough descent, they gradually approached the level of a stream, running through so very narrow a valley as in many places to afford barely space enough for the road between the brook and the precipitate heights which shut it in. On reaching this level, the road, which for the last quarter of a mile had seemed to be leading them into the little river itself, turned abruptly, and by an angle so acute, following the indented curve of the lofty hill, that they speedily appeared to be shut in on all sides by the towering hills that suddenly, and as if by magic, reared themselves in every direction round. It is hardly possible to conceive a spot more effectually hidden from the eyes of all men than this singular valley. 
hundreds may pass their lives within a few miles of it without having the least idea that such a spot exists. For, from the form of the hills it so happens, that it is possible to wander for hours over their summits without discovering it. One undulation rising beyond another, so as to blend together beneath the eye, leaving no opening by which this strip of water level in their very center can be discerned. Asterisk the real name of this valley, which most assuredly is no creation of romance, is not given, lest an action for libel should be the consequence. The scenes which have passed there, and which the few following pages will describe, have been stated to the author on authority not to be impeached. For about another half-mile, the narrow cart road runs beside the stream without encountering any single object, except its lofty barrier and the brook itself, more remarkable than here and there a reed of higher growth than common, or a plant of foxglove that by its gay blossom seems to mock the desolate sadness of the spot. Another turn, however, still following the wavy curvings of the mountain's base, for mountain there it seems to be, opens another view, and one that speaks to many senses at once, the difference between the melancholy caused by nature and that produced by the work of man. A wide, spreading cotton factory here rears its unsightly form, and at one glance makes the happy wanderer whose foot is free to turn which way he will, feel how precious is the power of retracing his steps back again along the beguiling path that has led him to it. This was a joy for which our little Michael sighed in vain. On jogged the cart, and nearer it came at every jolt to the object which he most hated to look upon. But then came also the cheering thought, that he was no longer a mere factory boy, but about to become an apprentice to a good and profitable trade, in which hereafter he might expect to get money enough for himself, for mother, and Teddy too. Nevertheless, he certainly did wish, at the very bottom of his heart, that the stocking-weaving business was not carried on in a building so very like a cotton factory. But though Michael saw this hated cotton factory, he as yet saw but a small portion of the horrors which belonged to the spot he had reached. His position in the vehicle made it impossible for him to look round, and perceive how completely all the acts that might be committed in that deep valley were hid from the eye of every human being but those engaged in them. Neither could he recognize in the dismal building detached, yet connected both with the manager's house and the factory, the prison prentice house, which served as home to hundreds of little aching hearts, each one endowed by nature with light spirits, merry thoughts, and fond affections, but all of whom rose to their daily toil under circumstances which rendered enjoyment of any kind, both morally and physically, impossible. The gradations by which all the misery that awaited him was disclosed were, however, neither lingering nor uncertain. The cart stopped, Parsons got out, and then calling forward his companion, seized him roughly by the arm, and swung him through the door which opened to receive them. "'So, this is the chap you are going to bestow upon us, is it, Mr. Parsons?' said a fellow whose aspect must have withered hope in the gayest spirit that youth and joy ever produced between them. "'Has he nimble fingers?' He can move him quick enough when he've got a mind for it, replied Parsons. But you must not spare the strap, I can tell you, for a more obstinate, hard-skinned little devil never crossed the threshold of a factory. Never mind, Mr. Parsons, we know how to manage all those matters, you may depend upon it. We possess many advantages over you, sir. No parents here, you know, to come bothering us about bones and bruises. Here they all counted what they are worth and no more. "'Children is plenty, Mr. Parsons, and that's about the best thing we have got in our favor. 
for it can't be denied but we all of us at times finds that we have managed to complete more work than tis easy to dispose of no doubt of that mr woodcomb but you had better hand off the boy if you please and then we'll settle our little matter of business and i'll be off your roads are none of the best sir and i must make my way back to the crooked billet to-night not till you have had a bit and a drop with us mr parsons they are at supper in the prentice house now and our young master shall be handed in at once so saying the scowling manager opened a door in the farther corner of the room and made michael a sign that he was to pass through it the child obeyed but he trembled in every joint feelings of deeper terror than had ever reached his heart before were creeping over him his lips moved not but his very soul seemed to whisper within him mother mother yet at that moment the unhappy boy knew not what was before him the influence under which he cowered thus was like that produced by the leaden dimness of a coming storm upon the birds who droop their pinions and seem ready to fall to the earth even before a single hailstone has touched them a long low passage led to another door which was again opened by the condescending hand of mr woodcomb through this he thrust the poor michael and having either by a word or a sign made known to the governor of the prentice house that he had brought an accession to his wretched crew he retired closing the door behind him michael heard the door close and looked up the room he was in was so long as almost to appear like a gallery and from one end to the other of it a narrow deal board stretched out having room for about two hundred to sit down at once the whole of this table was now occupied by a portion of the apprentice children both boys and girls belonging to deep valley mill and their appearance might have wrung the heart of any being who looked upon them however blessedly wide his own destiny might lead him from the melancholy troop but to michael the spectacle was appalling and young as he was he seemed to feel that the filthy half-starved wretches before him were so many ghostly representations of what he was himself to be a sickness like that of death came over him and he would have given a limb only for freedom to stretch himself down upon the floor and see no more but the master of the ceremonies at this feast of misery bore a huge horsewhip in his hand without which indeed it is said he seldom appeared on the premises and with it an eye that seemed to have the power of quelling with a single glance the will of every little wretch it looked upon the place that michael was to take at the board was indicated to him and he sat down the food placed before him consisted of a small bowl of what was denominated stir pudding a sort of miserable water porridge and a lump of oaten cake of a flavour so sour and musty that the little fellow though never accustomed till the fatal patronage of sir matthew fell upon him to any viands more dainty than dry bread could not at this first essay persuade himself to eat it the wife of the governor of the prentice house a help meet for him in every way chanced to have her eye upon the stranger child as he pushed the morsel from him and the smile that relaxed her features might have told him something had he chanced to see and understand it respecting the excellent chance there was of his having a better appetite in future a girl nearly of his own age sat on one side and a boy considerably older on the other the first who had as much of beauty as it was perhaps possible for any human being to have after a six months residence at deep valley mill looked up into his face with a pair of large blue eyes that spoke unbounded pity and he heard a soft little voice whisper poor boy while his lanky neighbour on the other side made a prize of the rejected food venturing to say aloud anyhow it is too good to be wasted the wretched meal did not last long 
and for a few minutes after it was ended the governor and his wife disappeared. During this interval, those who had strength and inclination moved about the room as they listed, but by far the greater number were already dropping to sleep after a day of protracted labor, during which they had followed the ceaseless movements of the machinery for above fifteen hours. Among the former was the hungry lad who had appropriated the oat-cake of Michael, and no sooner were the eye of the master and mistress removed, than he turned to the newcomer, and in a tone that seemed to hover between good humor and ridicule, said, "'So you could not find a stomach for your supper, my man?' "'I did not want supper,' replied Michael dolefully. "'You didn't want it, did you? "'That speaks better for the living as you have left "'than I can speak of that as you'll find,' returned his new acquaintance. "'Don't you say nothing to nobody, and to-morrow morning, "'after the lash have sounded through the room to wake us all, "'just you start up and jump into your clothes, "'and when we goes to pump, I'll show you where we get our tidbits from.' Michael was in the act of nodding assent to this proposal, when the woman, who five minutes before had left the room, returned to it, and by a very summary process caused the ragged, weary, prayerless, hopeless multitude to crawl and clamor, half sleeping and half waking, to their filthy beds. They were divided by fifties in a room, but notwithstanding the number, and the little space in which they had to stow themselves, the stillness of heavy sleep pervaded every chamber, ere the miserable little inmates have been five minutes enclosed within the walls. Poor Michael lay as motionless as the rest, but he was not sleeping. Disappointment, fearful forebodings, and excessive nausea all conspired to banish this only blessing that an apprenticed factory child can know. He had already labored, poor fellow, for nearly half his little life, and that under most hard and unrelenting masters. But till now he had never known how very wretched his young thoughts could make him. His mother's fond caresses and his brother's fervent love had in spite of toil, and sometimes in spite of hunger, cheered and comforted the last moments of every day. The rude bed also, on which the brothers lay, was too clean, notwithstanding all the difficulty of keeping it so, to be tainted with the loathsome scent of oil or sundry other abominations which rendered the place where he now lay almost intolerable. Yet to this den, far, far away from the only creatures who loved and cherished him, he was come by his own consent, his own expressed desire. The thought was almost too bitter to bear, and the bundle of straw that served him for a pillow received for the first hour of the night a ceaseless flood of tears. It was, as his young companion had predicted by the sound of a flourished whip, that he was awakened on the following morning. In an instant he was on his feet, and a minute or two more sufficed to invest him in his clothes. This speed, however, was the effect of terror, for he remembered not the invitation of the preceding evening. But hardly had he finished the operation of dressing when Charlie Ford, the boy who gave it, was by his side, and giving him a silent hint by a wink of the left eye and a movement of the right elbow that he might follow him, turned away and ran downstairs. Michael did so too, and presently found himself with a multitude of others in a small, paved court, on one side of which was a pump, to whose spout every child came in succession to perform a very necessary, but, from lack of soap, a very imperfect act of ablution. Neglecting to watch his turn for this, and not permitting Michael to do so either, Charles Ford made his way to a door that opened upon another part of the premises, and, pushing it open, disclosed to the eyes of Michael a loathsome and a fearful spectacle. Seven or eight boys had already made their way to the sort of rude farmyard upon which this door opened, one and all of whom were intent upon purloining from a filthy trough, just replenished for the morning meal, of two stout hogs, 
a variety of morsels which, as Michael's new acquaintance assured him, were dainty eating for the starving prentices of Deep Valley Mill. "'Make haste, young'un,' cried Charles, good-naturedly, "'or they won't leave a turnip paring for us.' And on he rushed to the scuffle, leaving Michael gazing with disgust and horror at the contest between the fierce snouts of the angry pigs and the active fingers of the wretched crew who contested with them for the offal thus cast forth. Michael Armstrong was a child of deep feeling, and it was, perhaps lucky for him, that the burning sense of shame and degradation which pervaded every nerve of his little frame, as he looked on upon this revolting spectacle, come upon him while yet too young for any notion of resistance to suggest itself. He felt faint, sick, and broken-hearted. But no worm that ever was crushed to atoms by the foot of an elephant dreamed less of vengeance than did poor Michael, as the horrid thought came over him, that he was going to abide in a place where little boys were treated with less care and tenderness than pigs. He turned away shuddering, and feeling almost unable to stand, and then the image of his mother seemed to rise before him. He felt her soft gentle kisses on his cheeks, and almost unconsciously pronounced her name. This dear name, lowly as it was murmured, came upon his ear so like the knell of happiness that was never to return, that the hard agony of his little heart melted before it, and sitting down upon a bundle of faggots that were piled up against the wall, he rested his burning head against the bricks, and burst into a passion of tears. At this moment he felt a hand upon his shoulder, and, trembling from head to foot, he sprung upon his feet, and suddenly turning round beheld, instead of the savage features of the overlooker which his fancy had conjured up, the meekest, gentlest, loveliest little face that ever eyes looked upon within a few feet of him. It was the same little girl who had been placed next to him at the miserable supper of the preceding night, and whose low murmur of pity for all the sorrow he was come to share with her had reached his ears and his heart. "'You'll be strapped dreadful if you bide here,' said the child. "'Come away, and don't let them see you cry.' but even as she spoke she turned from him and ran towards the door through which the miserable pilferers of the pictroff were already hurrying. Perhaps no other warning voice would have been so promptly listened to at that moment by poor Michael, for it was something very like the numbing effect of despair that seemed to have seized upon him, and it is likely enough he would have remained in the attitude he had taken, with his head resting against the wall, till the brutal violence of his taskmaster had dragged him from it, had not this pretty vision of pity appeared to warn him of his danger. He rose and followed her so quickly that by the time she had reached the crowd of children who were still thronging round the pump, he was by her side. "'Thank you,' whispered Michael in her ear. "'It was very kind of you to call me, and I shouldn't have come if you hadn't, for I shouldn't care very much if they killed me.' "'That's very naughty,' said the little girl. "'How can I be good?' demanded Michael, while the tears again burst from his eyes. "'Twas mother that made me good before.' and I don't think I shall ever see her any more. I never can see my mother any more till I go to heaven, replied the little girl, but I always think every day that she told me before she died about God's making everything come right in the end, if we bear all things patiently for love of him. But God can't choose I should be taken from mother, and that's why I can't bear it, said Michael. The little girl shook her head, very evidently disapproving his theology. How old are you? said Michael. Eleven years old, three months ago, and that was one week after I came here, answered his new acquaintance. Then you are more than one whole year older than me, said Michael, and I dare say you know better than I do, and I'll try to be good if you'll love me and be kind to me always, like poor Edward. 
My name is Michael. What's your name? Fanny Fletcher, replied the little girl, and I will love you and be kind to you, if you'll be a good boy and bear it all patiently. I would bear it all patiently, said Michael, if I knew when I was to get away, and when you was to get away too. But perhaps we are to stay here for ever? And again the tears ran down his cheeks. That's nonsense, Michael, said Fanny. They can't keep us here for ever. When we die, we are sure to get away from them. Michael opened his large eyes and looked at her with something like reproach. When we die, he repeated sadly, are we to stay here till we die? I am never to see Mother and Teddy any more, then. Don't cry, Michael, said the little girl, taking his hand. We shall be sure to get out if God thinks it right. Don't cry so. I wish I was as old as you, said Michael, with an accent expressive of great respect. I should bear it better then. As Michael ceased speaking, he felt the little girl shudder. Here he is, she whispered, withdrawing her hand from him. We mustn't speak any more now. Off with you, vagabonds, roared the voice of the apprentice house governor from behind them. Don't you see the factory gates open? The miserable little troop waited for no second summons, well knowing that the lash, which was now only idly cutting the air above their heads, would speedily descend upon them if they did. But not even terror could enable the wasting limbs of those who had long inhabited this fearful abode to move quickly. Many among them were dreadfully crippled in the legs, and nearly all exhibited the frightful spectacle of young features pinched by famine. Let none dare to say this picture is exaggerated, till he has taken the trouble to ascertain by his own personal investigation that it is so. It is a very fearful crime in a country where public opinion has been proved, as in the African slave trade, to be omnipotent, for any individual to sit down with a shadow of doubt respecting such statements on his mind. If they be true, let each in his own little circle raise his voice against the horrors detailed by them and these horrors will be remedied. But woe to those who supinely sit in contented ignorance of the facts, soothing their spirits and their easy consciences with the cuckoo note, exaggeration, while thousands of helpless children pine away their unnoted miserable lives, in labor and destitution, incomparably more severe than any ever produced by Negro slavery. It was with a feeling certainly somewhat akin to comfort that Michael found himself thrust into the same chamber with his gentle little monitor, Fanny. The mules they attended were side by side, and though no intercourse was permitted, that could by possibility interfere with the ceaseless labor of piecing, nevertheless, a word when their walk brought them near enough to each other to be heard, was often exchanged between the children, and the effect of this on Michael was most salutary. Superlatively, and above all others, Wretched as are the miserable young victims apprenticed to factory masters, it is not unusual to find among them some helpless creature whose first impressions were received under more favorable moral circumstances than those in which the pauper children of the manufacturing districts are placed. For it is from a distance from those unblessed regions that the great majority of apprentices are furnished, and the chances are, therefore, greatly in favor of their having first opened their eyes amidst scenes of less ignorance, degradation, and suffering, than those born within reach of the poisonous factory influence. Such was the case with Fanny Fletcher. It was not till mother and father were both dead that she had ceased to hear the voice of love and the precepts of religion. For three years she had, indeed, been supported by the labor of a poor widowed mother. But, being her only child, Fanny had wanted nothing, 
had never been exposed to the hearing of coarse language or the witnessing vicious habits, and all her little studies had been so thoroughly mixed up with religious feelings that by the time she was ten years old it would have been almost impossible to eradicate them or rob her entirely of the gentle courage and patient endurance such feelings invariably lead to. When her mother died, all the world, her little world, consisting of a score of poor bodies of her own class, exclaimed, Poor Fanny Fletcher! But there was not one among them rich enough to save her from the workhouse, and to the workhouse therefore she went, whence within three months she was sent, with many others as apprentices, to Deep Valley Factory, ostensibly, and as doubtless the parish authorities believed, to learn a good trade, but in truth, to undergo a species of slavery, probably the most tremendous that young children were ever exposed to in any part of the known world, civilized or uncivilized. That the desolate little creature suffered fearfully, both in body and mind, cannot be doubted. Yet, at the time Michael first saw her, there was still that beautiful look of innocent patience in her eyes, which shows that the spirit, though bending under sorrow, is neither reckless nor degraded. Herself and her companions from the workhouse to which she had been consigned at her mother's death were the latest arrivals at Deep Valley when Michael reached it, and were still considered by the rest of the inmates as newcomers, who did not yet know the full misery of incessant labor, with strength daily failing for want of pure air and sufficient food. Fanny was by nature a slight, delicate little creature, with an elastic sort of vitality about her which seemed to set fasting at defiance. That is to say, her sweet eye had not yet lost its brightness, but her beautifully fair cheek was very pale, and her delicate limbs most deplorably thin, though they had not yet reached that shrunk and wasted condition which was nearly general among her companions. Michael looked at her as she bent over her threads, and repaired the incessant breakings among them with her white little hands, with a degree of love and pity which, while it wrung his heart, softened the hard despair that had nearly seized upon him by making him feel that though his mother and his brother were lost to him for long, long years, during which he was to taste of nothing but misery, still there was somebody who might grow to love him. This was a timely solace. Young as he was, he perceived at once that instead of being brought to Deep Valley to learn a trade, he had been beguiled to enter there, bound and helpless, for more years than he dared to count, and with no prospect of learning anything beyond the same slavish process of waiting upon the machinery, which had painfully occupied his daily existence and that of his dearer brother as long as they could remember to have lived. Under these circumstances, it was truly a great blessing to have found somebody of whom he might make a friend, and so strongly did the poor little fellow feel it, that when the miserable band were led to their morning meal, he told Fanny as he walked beside her, that he thought he should grow to behave better than he had done that morning, if she would always talk to him about good things, and let him talk about mother and Teddy to her in return. "'There's a good boy,' replied Fanny soothingly. "'I will talk to you, Michael, whenever I can, and never mind,' she added as they sat down again side by side at the long, dirty board that formed their breakfast-table. "'Never mind not having what's good to eat. It won't taste so nasty by and by, when you grow used to it.' "'I won't mind it,' replied Michael manfully, as he supped the musty-flavoured watery mess. "'But I wish I had got a bit of good bread for you, Fanny.' End of chapter 17